We're on a series uh, entitled, This Is You, as you well know, and uh, we've been on it most of the fall since October, and it really is a, an identity, an identity um, word, a word about our identity in Christ. It operates on a very specific premise that we must know really who the Bible says we are if we're going to become who the Bible says that we can become. And I can't fulfill my destiny and my purpose unless I have a true understanding what the Bible declares about me as a person and start embracing those things by faith and standing in confidence in those things and moving forward in those things. And we've talked about so many things from we are adopted to we are gifted to, you know, to, to we are sent and we are different. And we, we've had a number of different themes that we have laid out for you on, on what the Bible has to say. Today, I want to talk to you about the concept, the metaphor concept that Jesus gave us, that we are salt and that we are light. And I just want to just start off by going straight to the word in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 16. Let me frame this in for a second. This, this verse 13 comes after verse 12. I passed math when I was in high school. But, uh, but the first 12 verses of Matthew 5 is what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, the famous, the famous sermon. And it's, it is... And it's the, it, Jesus starts off with what we call the Beatitudes or the values or the convictions and the belief systems that we are to possess that we, we live our life by. And they're pretty strong. They're very, very radical. They're, as I'm going to use this word today over and over, over again. They're very, very countercultural. And he lays this thing out. And then verse 13 comes in as the result of you and I Making that happen in our life, this is what Jesus said that we are. He said, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He goes on to say, nor do people light a lamp and, and put it under a basket. Turn on the light, turn on the light, and then you put a basket to cover the light. That doesn't happen. But it's on a stand that it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Unfortunately, this partic these particular two verses have kind of been diluted because they kind of got into a, just a simple little children's chorus for Sunday school, you know. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine. And we get so familiar with a phrase that we, I hope that you discover today, that could be two of the most profound verses of the New Testament. Yeah. It's far deeper, far more prophetic. And I'm going to be very prophetic and not overly fun today. As I told the first service, I may offend everybody. Not here trying to do that or get on some hobby horse, but I'm burdened about the church becoming salt and the church becoming light and what I think Jesus meant by that. Jesus was saying, not that we're going to be salt, not that we're going to be light. Jesus was saying that by virtue of knowing him, by virtue of the work of God in our life, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, by virtue of the word of God being given to us and as Jeremiah said, the book of Hebrews says, this word written on our mind and written on our heart, by reason of who we are as believers who have been born from heaven, we are light. 
We are salt. The question is really needs to be asked, are we willing to be salt and are we willing to be light? I've said this before to you, and I know that there's a conception with a lot of evangelical Christians that somehow that we make up like half the, the, half the population in the United States, but I think whoever's claiming to be evangelical or born again, that could be debated. Here's a true statistic, that on any given Sunday in the United States of America, only 19 to 20% of Americans are in church. So whatever statistic they have of what a great mighty force we are, I don't know if we're really a mighty force of disciples. Mighty force of people trying to take messages like we're going to hear today super seriously in their life to make sure that this is taking place. Now, I, I kind of rejoice in one way that we're only 19, 20% born again because I like a fight. I like a challenge. I love being an underdog. I love the fact that people expect less of me and all of a sudden I go way past their expectations. I love every movie that's ever been made about an underdog, from Hoosiers to the Titans to Rudy, the Cinderella Man, and of course, who could forget Rocky 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 6.5, and The Creed. I love underdog movies. I love, I love when the, the, the person who have, people have less expectation of somehow rises to greatness. Kind of like the University of Washington Huskies. Okay. But the issue is, what a challenge we have if that statistic is true. And then we're really outnumbered one to five. So what are we going to do? We have the great opportunity to become salt, and to become light to make a difference. Now, here's my first soft statement today. The Beatitudes are a countercultural perspective of life that Jesus wants us to demonstrate and communicate to society as we engage it, not hide from it. We have to embrace that we've been called to a countercultural lifestyle. We are called, we have to embrace that we're called to be different. That we're actually involved in a countercultural movement. As disciples of Jesus, it's a movement that is of a movement of a different kind. It's a movement that way back in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 17, they said, Those who have turned the world upside down have come here to us. It's a countercultural movement that shook the Roman Empire without one ounce of legislation. Shook the Roman Empire because their lifestyles were so intense and so different and so genuine, so unique, so full of love, so much of a different kingdom that everybody stopped and noticed, who are these people? They didn't have any communication systems. They had no army. They had nobody representing them. They had no resources. They had nothing except they had Jesus, and they had the presence of the Holy Spirit, and they had this mandate that I want you to be the salt of the earth. We got we to take this thing in context in verse 13 to what just took place in the first 12 verses. Jesus exposes a countercultural lifestyle. He says, first of all, we're to be poor in spirit. That means humility. doesn't mean poverty, but it means poverty of self. It means that I have not arrived. 
That means I still got stuff to work on. It means I fall short here. I found this, and all those maybe 40 and older, 50 and older, maybe you agree with me. The longer I live, the less I like myself. There's a reason why we have movies like Grumpier Old Men. The more you live, the more you see yourself, the more grumpy you get. The less impressed you are with yourself. Less cocky, less boastful, less confident. You've just been marked by too many things where you're aware of your humanness. We need humility where I need God. We need humility where I've fallen short and God has to come in my life and he has to transform me. Well, Bob, don't you believe in victory? I believe in absolute victory. Don't you believe that we're to become a holy people? I do. I just don't think it's an overnight process. I think I am set apart. I think I'm being set apart. And when Jesus comes, I'll be completely set apart. But until Jesus comes, I still got an eraser on my pencil. I still get it wrong. I remember French, uh, uh, Jensen Franklin on his one book, he went out with a date with his wife and his five kids were home with a babysitter and they, and they were not supposed to touch something. They touched it and they broke this expensive piece of thing in their house. And he comes in and they're all lined up. They know who did it, but none of the kids would think on each other. He said, if you don't confess who it is, if you don't confess who it is, the Lord will show it to me and I'll spank him. And so he said, okay, it's you. The Lord told me it was you. And of course, this kid comes in, and, and uh, he gives him a spanking, and, and uh, turns out, well, after he spanks to the kid that actually did it, says, Dad, no, it was me. And of course, the whole family goes, oh, yeah, 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 God, you said that God told you to spank Jimmy. And he had to really repent before his kids. We don't have it all together, do we? Jesus said that we are to be poor in spirit. We are to mourn. I know that doesn't sound real positive, like, blessed are those who mourn. Now, Jesus wasn't talking about walking in a state of bereavement. Sometimes I just say hi to people and they start crying. Now, I don't mean to be uncompassionate towards human sorrow, but some people would just cry all the time for everything. But he's talking about that we would have a constant state of repentance, that I would mourn continually for the things that I still need to conquer in my life, the things where I still fail. You know what would happen if we're just all... Just all dealing with each other. You know, Deidre, would you forgive me? No, Bob, would you forgive me? No, would you forgive me? No, would you forgive me? You know, we just get along a whole lot better. And we just walk around saying, you know what? We don't have our act together. We all have to grow. We're talking about a counterculture. We're talking about a lifestyle that's different. Jesus said, blessed are those who are meek. Now, meek is not weak. It means I take everything that I have and I'm just completely yielded to God. You can just lead me left, lead me right, lead me still, lead me forward, lead me backwards. I am yours. I am yours. I'm completely yielded. I had a friend of mine named Kit Shaw. He was number one in the nation, NAIA, 157 weight class at Central Washington. Number one wrestler in his weight class in the nation, NAIA. He tore up his knee. And he let the guy that was the weight above him come down. He wouldn't challenge him. He says, if you know, I get better, you can still go to, the, you can go, to the, you can go to the championship. Kit went to a prayer meeting, got prayed for, got miraculously healed. Kit was scared that you're going you're gonna to challenge me now, and you're going to go to the championship because I can't beat you. He says, no, I gave you my word. My word I will keep. Kit went in the next weight class up, lost the, lost the national championship because he was yielded, because he was meek. Because it was more important who he was representing than the thing he achieved. 
Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God. And we're talking about people, I got, I got to do my devotions, I haven't done it all week. No, we're talking about people who are passionate to read the Bible, passionate to pray, passionate to discover, passionate to seek God and to know God. Jesus said, blessed are those who are merciful. Merciful means to be kind, compassionate, to be giving. Because we will receive kindness and compassion and mercy. He said, blessed are those who are pure. Pure means wholehearted. We're just wholehearted followers of Jesus. Not perfect followers, but we're just in it. Remember, we're going to give it our all. We're not going to leave anything on the field. We're going to give all. Wholehearted followers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. We seek harmony. We seek harmony between men and God. That's evangelism. That's witnessing. But we seek harmony between men and men. We seek harmony between genders. We seek harmony between races. We seek harmony between classes of people. We seek harmony between different people groups. We're peacemakers. We represent the very nature of God that Paul said, out of one blood, he has made all nations. We're peacemakers, and we're willing to be persecuted for all that. You see, when we see Jesus' standard and what's called the beatitude, we say, well, that's unattainable. So what we do is we get into cheap grace. We just say, you know, it's not unattainable. I can't get there, so I'll just kind of hang out and just be kind of compromising. And I don't want to be weird in culture, so we adapt. We give it all up, and we just adapt to culture, become one with culture. There's no difference between us and culture. The opposite thing we do is I want to make sure I'm pure on this, so I'm going to go hide. We can Catholic hide, or we can Protestant hide. We call them convents and cloisters, or we can go off and create a Christian community someplace out in the desert and we just kind of hang out by ourselves and we're not going to get entered. We, you know, we're not going to anybody get near us. So we're going to have our little Christian home group and we sing Kumbaya and, you know, scratch the back next to you and, you know, we're going to just sit there and have fellowship all the time and we, we just talk about our world and our, our church and our feelings and our kids and we just kind of do community because we're hiding from the world. Our kids are homeschooled or in Christian education. I'm not here to make any criticism about that, about that. But eventually, every parent has to make a decision. i got to throw my kid in the lion's den. Someday, you're going to have to put your kid in the lion's den. I'm not here to tell you when that is. That's a, that's a delicate, sensitive decision. But eventually, they're going to have to face somebody that's different. Because they're called to be the light and salt to them. That might be in college, that might be in high school, might be in wherever, but every parent has to make a decision. My issue is this, we know how to cloister and to hide. Jesus didn't teach us either. Jesus said, I want you to engage culture. When you engage culture, I want you to love it, and I want you to confront it. We do good about loving it, but not confronting it. Now, I've been really given a lot of examples that really reveal my generation, especially boomers and builders here. I'm going to give another one. Last week it was blue chip stamps, S&H green stamps. Today it's about when I got hurt in Southern California, we played on concrete. We didn't have any trees. We had no grass. We lived in concrete. That's what it is in Los Angeles. So when you fell off your, you know, your skates and you fell off your bike, 
remember one time I went down a hill and a car was coming perpendicular to me and I lost control and I drove my bicycle right into a mailbox. You had abrasions. I grew up with scabs and cuts and lacerations my whole life. In those days, they didn't have these nice little tubes of antibacterial ointment. They just kind of soothed on the cut. In those days, they had this bottle called methylate. Remember that? Remember how many people my age remember methylate? Yeah. You know what methylate was? It was child abuse. <laughs> That's what methylate was. Here you are. You are lacerated. You got embrasions. You got burns. You're going into the bathroom. You're already in pain because half your skin's been taken off your body. And your mother takes out this bottle with this little red stick, with this little stick on it. it had iodine on it. It was red. And you were going from pain to purgatory. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to go, Merthiolate! No! It only hurt a minute. And it just, I mean, it burned, it burned, it burned. And there was many a child was in that bathroom screaming bloody murder because that parent was taking care of them. But you know what? We're to be a little bit like methylate. We're to, we're to be a little bit like a little agitation in a cultural wound. We can't, we can't hide and judge, and we can't over-adapt, but we must love. And we have to be in that middle because Jesus commanded us, and we have to radically love, and we have to radically confront. And sometimes in that, there's going to be a little... If I'm not making people think and you're not making people think, we're not doing our job. But I can't make them think unless they're absolutely convinced I love them. They're not interested in my thinking if they don't think I love them. So we live in a great tension. The metaphors of salt and light have clear and specific interpretations. Let's look at salt here. We have to interpret this, not you can give me all sorts of stuff, you can get up on Google on salt, but we gotta, we gotta interpret it what it meant to Jesus and the people of his day. Salt was a prized possession in ancient, in ancient uh, oriental culture. In fact, soldiers got paid with salt. That's how prized it was. Because it represents, it represents influence, it represents preservation, but it was prized because it gave food flavor and it preserved food. So it was quite a valuable commodity. And so you're a prized possession. When he says you are salt, he's, he's saying you're a prized possession. And so people would say, man, God's got to really come down and help America. I would rather rephrase that. You got to help America. Jesus ain't going to help America. He ain't going to help Mexico. He ain't going to help Ecuador. He ain't going to help China. He ain't going to even right now, we got to be praying for Pastor Randy Ziegler, who's now in Cuba. He, he was flying, and Fidel Castro died on his way there. So he's in, he's, in, he's in Cuba right now. But you know what? He's being salt. He's being light. we gotta, we got to engage that world. We're the answer to that world. We're the prized possession. We're the answer to the world's relationship with God. We're the answer to the world's bondages, addictions, habits, hang-ups, hurts. We're the answer. We're the answer to reconciliation. We're the answer. The church is. 
When the church can't get these things together, it can't be the salt and light to fulfill its mission to the world. We're the answer for the world. But we're going to have to have the courage to be countercultural if we're going to be this. Light, light speaks of truth or, or seeing. You know, a lamp, if that, of course, it's that which must be dispensed. A lamp gives, obviously, light to the house. A city on the hill isn't just a city you can see afar off, but cities on the hills in those days gave light to the whole countryside. It gave light and helped people see. We're the ones that need to help people see. The church has to light up the city. Of course, the question is always, is not are we light, but will we be light? Will, will we demonstrate? Will we identify with Christ? Will we engage in conversation? Will we be in a place where we open people's eyes? Salt has to come out of the shaker, church. And light can't be hidden. We can hide it. And we can refuse to be shaken. But unless we are, we'll never be what God called us to be. Here's my main point today. We are called to irritate and provoke, not to Christianize institutions and control them. I'm going to make a statement here. We're not called to Christianize institutions, especially when they're filled with people who are not even interested in God. And somehow from the outside in to reform them if we want to bring reform. I'm going to reform you from the outside in. Reform comes from the inside out. Now, Bob, don't you believe that America at one time was a, was a Christian nation? I believe we were a Christian commonwealth at one time that had an absolute conviction for the tolerance for, tolerance for dissenters in conscience. That was a big reason why we had the First Amendment. I think when we wrote that, we never thought that Christians were going to be the ones that had to be respected to be the ones who are conscientious objectors at times. But I do not believe that we're a Christian commonwealth today. I'm going to give my own opinion. One out of five people in church, I've worked with too many Christians that don't have a biblical worldview. We've got our work cut out for us. We're a nation of secularist humanists and New Agers and isms here and isms there and atheism here and that's what we are. That's what we are as a nation. And so we're not going to convert from the outside in. We're not going to reform from the outside in. Do I believe in just laws? I believe in just laws. Don't, 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 don't misinterpret what I'm saying. But don't fool yourself that laws that are made will convert men. Reform has to take place from the inside out. And so that's what we do. We're called to live a countercultural lifestyle that calls and appeals like a prophet of the Old Testament, people to come to Jesus and to repent. We don't want to become a Constantine. In 313 AD, Emperor Constantine cre created what was called the Edict of Milan. I've actually seen a pillar erected in Istanbul, Turkey, which used to be the Roman city, Constantinople commemorating the Edict of Milan, which was the Edict of Tolerance, especially towards Christians. In 382, Theodosius said that Christianity was the religion of the Roman state. In the early 500s, in the early 6th century, Justinian declared that it was illegal to be anything except a Christian. 
Now, did this help the church? No, it did not help the church. It actually, the church was filled with people who didn't want to be there. People who were coerced. People who weren't true born-again believers. People whose names were not written in heaven. People who did not want anything to do with Jesus. It mixed the church. It's what people drove into monasteries and they drove into separating themselves. They didn't know how to deal with this situation. That's not what we're wanting to create as a culture. What we're wanting to create is reform from the inside and out. And to do that, we're going to have to be irritants with love. Let me just share with you three people, some of you may know, some of you may not know, who are irritants in church history. One was Charles Loring Brace. How many people have ever heard of Charles Loring Brace? How many people have ever heard of the orphan trains? In the 1850s, in the 1850s in the United States, New York City probably had anywhere from 30 to 40,000 homeless children on the streets. 30 to 40,000. This is pre-Civil War. Charles Lloyd Brace was a Presbyterian, Calvinist preacher. He just got bored with being a pastor. He wanted to do something more, and he had a great compassion in his heart to be involved in relieving poverty. He had an absolute conviction morally, and he was a radical of his time, that that putting children in almshouses and putting children in institutions destroyed them and stunted any development that potentially they had. He believed the key to a child's future was family. And so what he did, he created a program. He actually created an association called the, the Children's Aid Society, which many believe today he is the father of the foster home system where he basically put kids on trains with escorts out west to connect them to farm families and to connect them to small towns where people got to interview the kids, fill out forms, and say, no, we will adopt that child and they will be mine. In the time span that the Children's Aid Society existed, 150,000 children were sent on trains from New York to out to the west. I don't have the statistics, but I've read statistics where from that group of orphans came so many great politicians and judges and educators and inventors and leaders in military and other things, people that are part of American history came out of that cluster of kids because a man had an absolute radical conviction that those children's lives mattered. He was an irritant. He was a prophetic voice that we can't treat children this way. One of my favorite people of all time, Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa was an Albanian Indian Roman Catholic nun who in 1950 created missionaries of charity with 4,500 nuns involved in this particular uh, charity society. They have school, they have, they have clinics Leper, leper houses, they work with, the, we work with AIDS patients and HIV patients and mobile clinics and counseling programs and orphanages all over the world, 4,500 of them. They have four vows that they take, chastity, poverty, obedience, and the last vow that they take is wholehearted service to the poor. But Mother Teresa, because of her radical service to the dying and the, basically the rejected of the world, her strongest voice is against abortion. And that's what she's known for. 
like a prophetess. I think it was in 1996, she spoke at the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. My, my year may be off on that. The Clintons were there, the Gores were there, all sorts of dignitaries were there. And she ended her presentation at, at this particular breakfast by saying these words. If we can accept that a mother can kill her child, how can we tell other people not to kill one another? That's an irritant. That's a provoker. That is salt. crowd didn't know quite how to respond. All of a sudden, one person started clapping. Another person started clapping. Another person started clapping. Pretty soon, people were starting to stand up. Pretty soon, there's a standing ovation given to her. She talked to, she sought Hillary Clinton out immediately. They disagreed on the subject, but Hillary Clinton in her own writing said she continued to write me all the time concerning her thoughts and her convictions about abortion. The one thing I felt from her, although I disagreed with her, is she didn't scold me, she didn't judge me, she said it with great love, but she was a voice. She spoke up. She spoke up with love. She spoke up with a life that could back what she said. But she spoke out. William Booth. William Booth is the Methodist evangelist who started what you know today as the Salvation Army. 1878. It really wasn't, you know, an organization where someone rang a bell and you dropped some quarters in at Christmas time. He was a winner of souls. He was an evangelist like no one's business. But he believed in not just preaching the gospel, but preaching the gospel to deal with the sufferings of human, of human beings, and to relieve that suffering and demonstrate the love of God and minister to the whole person as he was preaching the gospel. He believed very strongly as a voice. He believed in a book that he wrote in the 19th century that England was so lost that it was darker in its, in its civility than the darkest of Africa at the time. He basically said, we're a lost nation, and we need God. He put a whole system of how the nation could be restored through the gospel and through the restoration of the poor. He was a voice. His son spoke against a child prostitution ring that many members of parliament were a part. Because of his son's voice, parliament ended a, instigated a law that said that there was nobody could be a prostitute that was under the age of 16 years old. Now, that may sound too radical for you now, but this was the 19th century. They were a voice. They were an irritant. They were salt. They won people to Jesus, and they paid a deep price. We're an engaged culture with the gospel just like they did and absolute radical love. This counterculture is a love culture. It's blessed are those who are mournful. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are merciful. Blessed are those who are peacemakers. It's a radical love culture. It's a prophetic voice that comes from a position of appeal and from a position of love. Irritation comes from a radical life of love. That's where the irritation comes from. They, your own life is an irritant because of how you live. Your whole life is a provoking influence because of the way that you live. And your whole spirit towards them is, a, is an irritant because they can't argue your love. But it's a voice. 
you know, critics of the pro-life movement have something we have to listen to and we have to, I think, in my opinion, we have to resolve to become a stronger voice. And that is, you say you're for life, but what about the life that comes out of the womb? Are you for that life? The poverty they might be going through or the adoption they might need. So if we're going to adopt any kid, we say, don't abort the kid, we'll adopt it. And we have a million abortions every year in the United States. I would say that we need a million families ready to adopt right now. We need to put our actions where our voices. Do you think about the child's education? Do you think about the things that they're going to experience, the, the opportunities they need to, to have nutrition and have education and have support and have counsel, all these things that they need because of the things that they're going to experience? Are you for all of life? Good question. Question. Sometimes our voice not heard because they hear also the noise of mixture in us. That our righteousness is only partial. That our righteousness sometimes is not complete. I know that no matter what we do, there are people who will always harden their heart towards our voice. I know that. But how many could have walls taken down if we become salt and we become light? Jesus said this, they will see your good works. Well, I don't believe in works. When it comes to salvation, no, we're saved by faith. But because I'm saved, works will be a part of my life. So how does salt lose its flavor? And in Jesus' teachings here, who counts the church worthless? You know, salt becomes impure when it's mixed with other substances that are impure. That's when it loses its flavor. That's when it loses its content. So what are we mixing with in our thinking processes? What are we mixing with in our priorities? What are we mixing with? You know, America has been guilty of spreading a materialistic gospel all over the world. Bob, do you believe in having nice things? I believe in having nice things. God gives us richly all things to enjoy. But there's a limit. There's a limit. And every one of us has to figure out where that limit is. The question is really not how much do I give God, but the question is how much does God allow me to keep? Every one of us has to ask that question. And every man will answer in his own conscience to God himself. No one's to judge another. I'm not here to be legalistic. But what kind of a lifestyle are we portraying? We're maybe in our value systems and our commitments to the gospel and our commitment to truth and our commitment to lifestyle and our commitment to love, our commitment to mission. Where maybe have we mixed with impure substances where we've adapted to culture and we've lost our voice or when we've hid from culture and we lost our mission? You know, every teaching of Jesus in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, has to be seen in sequence. Prior to Matthew 5, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the hunger, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are those who are peacemakers, is Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, the ministry of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said these words in chapter 3 and verse 2. 
I didn't mark it in my Bible here. Give me a second to look it up. I memorize it, but I want to read it. It'll sound so much more pointed. John the Baptist prepared people to receive the mercy of Jesus, but here is the, here is the prerequisite. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in verse 8, he said, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, let your lifestyle show that you have repented. That's why I have to constantly cast myself upon the mercy of God. That's why I have to constantly pursue God with passion. That's why I have to constantly be in a place where I want to just make sure my heart is wholehearted in dedication to him because I'm to bring forth the fruits of repentance out of my life. Bob, are you saying that you think the church needs to repent? Yes. Do you think our church needs to repent? Yes. Do you think you need to repent? Yes. I think that we are guilty of mixed substance. And we need to become salt again. You know, when the church fails to live a countercultural, radical love lifestyle, the world counts the church as worthless. When Jesus said it's, that the salt has lost its saltiness, it's to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. Who throws it out and who tramples it? The world. The world is what tramples it. The world says it's worthless. The world says its mission is worthless. The world says its message is worthless because it's lost its saltiness. When Mother Teresa gets up to speak, when William Booth or his family got up to speak, they were backed by saltiness. They were backed by demonstration. They were backed by light. Now, how should I live if this is true? Well, first thing is this. You've got to recognize that your life has a positive or a negative impact on others. I didn't become a Christian for a while. I, I could have gotten saved in my early teens because the gospel was being presented to me then, but my campus back in the late 60s and the early 70s, we had what we call a Jesus people group on campus. And I know something about these Christians because I was... I was Mr. Partier in the sense of vocal and joking and Mr. Gregarious, even when I was a kid, hurting in pain. I could tell good jokes, and I told a lot of good dirty ones. And I remember the Christians, they loved my dirty jokes. They laughed so hard. But when I, took, when I, when I shared sacrilegious jokes, they got all prudish on me. Oh, that's not funny at all. That's not funny at all. So you laugh at my dirty jokes, you don't like to laugh at my sacrilegious jokes. I mean, you're inconsistent. The head of the group made out with the same girls I did, so I didn't necessarily want to become a follower of Jesus. He was no different than me. My life has an impact positively or negatively. I have to accept that. I also have to be intentional to share the gospel and live responsibly. Absolute intentionality. I mean, I need to engage, not to run. I need to gauge, not adapt. I need to gauge in service. Here a number of years ago, Dave Shaw, Pastor Jan, a few of us, we went to a seminar on child poverty and welfare in the state of Washington. We went up to Tacoma, 
We went in because we wanted to learn. We went in because we wanted to improve as a church. We went in because we were trying to do everything we could to make a difference in this area. We were treated with cold shoulders. We were the only faith-based group that was there. We were faith with a puzzled look like, why are you here? Like we didn't belong there. We are the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. If the church isn't concerned about child poverty and welfare, what is she? What is she? Jesus loves you, but we don't care about your plight. And we weren't really received with any warm reception. But we got to get involved again. It's because we've been away so long, hoping to get raptured out of here in some secret takeoff. Just looking at our eschatological charts and watching Christian TV and grabbing books and going on Christian cruises that we forget there are people that Jesus died for and loved that are in just absolute misery right now. We need to engage in prayer. God heals atheists. He loves atheists. He heals Buddhists. He heals Muslims. Got hundreds and hundreds of stories of God radically touching Muslims around the world. God loves people. He doesn't love them because he agrees with them. He just loves them. We need to be intentional. We need to love radically. That means we've got to be involved. Let me ask you a question. Are you involved in anybody's life right now? Not some middle-class person is having middle-class problems, but someone who's got their life so caught up in such a, like a bunch of yarn with knots and issues and just, it seems like it's just a, it would just be like a miracle for them to pull themselves out of this pit. Are you walking with anybody like that? What would happen if every one of you got one person that you and your household just, we are going to take that person on and if it takes 10 years, we're going to pull them out. I'm going to tell you what would happen. We would have revival in Clark County. That's what we're trying to do with our single mom internship program. We watched it work. We watched the power of mentoring where you walk alongside of somebody and become their cheerleader, become their hope. Their lives change. They come to Jesus. They get baptized. They get filled with the Holy Ghost. They get a job. They get skilled. They change their mindset. Their whole status in life changes because someone walked with them and, and cared for them. My wife, a number of years ago, she was at school. There was a kid whose foot was coming out of his shoe. And so Sue's thinking, what's the administration of this school letting this happen for? So she's going to march this kid down to the office, and the Lord spoke to her. You buy him shoes. You buy him shoes. She got kind of convicted, and she went home with the boy, found out where we live. At least she got her address, and she went and introduced herself to the mom, and family had been homeless for two years, just got into an apartment. She says, I'd like to buy your son's shoes, and can I take him to Walmart or whatever she took him to, Target, buy him shoes? And then the family says, well, can we come along? We have needs, too. So Sue ended up buying clothes and shoes and sweatshirts and hoodies for the whole family. You say, would church pay for that? No, no, it was right out of our pocket. It got worse. I got home, and we had these garbage bags in our house. We had to have at least 15 of them. 
And, and man, it was like Santa Claus, you know, the, you know, the kind of bag he has on his back. There had to be, you know, the hefty kind, the hefty, dark, plastic ones that you can't break with too much weight. We had to have 10 to 15 of these bags. These people had laundry they hadn't done in a year for the whole family. And Sue says, I'll do the laundry. I mean, it was like a pickup truck, I mean, a, a semi-truck load of laundry. But somehow Sue just said, you know what, I am going to get involved with this family. She said, I'll get you food. And so she brought him food. And, and she, for, well, she went to go to the store to buy food. She goes, what kind, of, what kind of food do you like? Well, we like corn dogs. Well, why like corn dogs? That's the only thing we know how to make. Take the corn dog out of the packet, put it in the microwave. And that was their level of skill level to cook food. We got to get involved individually, not a program. The church needs to do this. You are the church. When Jesus said, you are the light of the world, it's you plural, not you singular. You're the church. Get involved. It's cheaper if we break it down to individual responsibility. We can do this. Pastor Matt Moult took the young adult group and he adopted an apartment complex off of 4th Plain Boulevard right near Grand. He went in there. He adopted it. Every month they went in. One day, they cleaned all the apartments in the complex. The people who wanted them to clean the apartments and the empty ones, they put in a new park for the kids. When the slumlords turned off the water in the hot summertime, there's no air conditioning. These apartments, they came in with slippery slides. They built a basketball court. They showed movies. I remember one movie night, they showed Nacho Libre. Did a whole barbecue for, you know, about 75% Hispanics. Nacho Libre, I don't know if it was the best movie for the people, but it was... They prayed for people. People were calling up on the phone. I got, I got healed. I'm different. Something happened to my body. The manager of the complex gave her life to Jesus and came to church here. KTU, Channel 2 News, came and interviewed Natalie. They were getting medical supplies and stuff for Christmas. And, and they said that this was one of the number one places the Vancouver City Police visited. And now it's been taken off the list. People are lined up to get in. I remember the, the, I remember the anchor guy, 6 o'clock news, said, well, that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a different story. But see, that's what happens. What would happen if the church radically became salt and radically became light, it would be different news every night. It would be the kingdom of God coming to the kingdom of darkness. And when darkness meets light, it's going to go away. But we got to be light. We got to be salts. What happened, Bob? A new owner came in and kicked us out. What happened to the apartment complex? It just devolved into its previous state. We had a revival going on there. We're in warfare. The enemy does not want us to be salt and light. Our young adults and Matt didn't ask the church one dime for this. They did it all with their own money. They personally took that thing on. How should I live if this is true? I live a countercultural lifestyle and value system. Bottom line is everything's about Jesus. Bottom line is I just want to be like number 10,000. I want to get in the back of the line. I want to prefer others before myself. I don't want to be entitled to anything. I want to give in. I want to give up. I want to give over. I am last. Well, can I really do that? Yeah, just practice it. Practice it in little things. 
Let people go ahead of you in grocery lines. I hate grocery lines. I hate them with a passion. The biggest thing, and I, forgive me for this, when I'm in a grocery line that just irritates me the both, but God is dealing with me, is when I have some older person ahead of me, and they got one item. That's why I got in the line. And they go like this to get in their purse. We got so much we got to deal with ourselves. So much we got to work with. So much that we got to die to ourselves. We really put other people above ourselves. And we have to practice it on an ongoing basis. I got to start with my wife. Sue has no problem asking me to do things all the time. <laughs> all the time. And I get irritated. But I got to stop being irritated. I got to, well, honey, whatever. Yes, 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 yes. Because I'll practice it on my neighbor, practice it on other people. I can say, you know, my whole life's not about me. My life's about Jesus. And I want it to be about Jesus. I don't want it to be about me. And we got to accept the mandate and be willing to sacrifice. Am I willing to be salt? And I'm willing to be light. Or do I want to lose my substance and be thrown out by the world and stomped on as worthless because I have no message or life to back it? That's my question today. Team, come on up. Let's stand to our feet. This is you. Salt the light of the world. Father, I, I pray. I pray today that first that we would be challenged by this word, not condemned. That we would be courageous because of this world, word, not because we're backing away into a corner and being a self-absorbed coward. But we'll accept the mandate to penetrate and to be a prophetic voice let us be like Stephen in Acts chapter 7 who said they looked upon him and his face was like an angel and his wisdom they could not resist. Let us be like the early apostles who suffered and yet were delivered. Let us accept, Lord God, that in life we're not here to win a popularity contest and just everybody to always to think well of us. We're here to be loving people, but we're here for their sake to do everything we can to provoke them to think. Lord, let us be persuaders of men. Paul said, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade all men. Help us to embrace your disciples that went before us and develop a lifestyle that will not drown out our voice, but will enhance it. In Jesus' name.